You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Chuck, how are you doing? How was your weekend? Good. When is this podcast going to be with Rachel and Chuck, though? <laughs> I don't know. It's just alphabetical order. <laughs> okay. That's a very Minnesotan way to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's alphabetical. Okay. I guess if we did last names, it would still be alphabetical. I'm, I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm loving the weather. That is all I really care about right now. It uh, feels like a real summer, finally. It's beautiful it here. like in the 80s. That's yeah. what summer should be. It's been gorgeous here. And actually, um, I spent the weekend doing manual labor, uh, which doesn't sound like fun, but it actually was great. I, I, we, when we moved into our house, which was a year ago, uh, two, a year ago Saturday was when we closed on it. Mm. Um, the first thing we did, of course, because we're good neighbors, is build a big fence. No, <laughs> we did build well, a fence. That was for the dogs, right? It was for the dogs. It was also kind of like the, um, uh, you know, around us, everybody had a fence in their backyard. And um, we were just kind of, yeah, we were just kind of fitting in with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for people who have really never had neighbors, which is how I would describe our family. I mean, I grew up on a farm. And, uh, you know, lived in apartments during college and our early marriage years. But then we, we built this house in the woods. I, I think one of the scarier things, and I'll admit for me a little bit, but, but you know, for my wife and the rest of the family was, oh, my gosh, we're going to have people right next door. And, yeah. you know, uh, that's actually been one of the blessings. I mean, I, our neighbors are fantastic and they've been really great and a lot of fun. Um but the you know the, having the backyard fenced in is good for the the pack our two dogs mm-hmm. um it's also you know our kids uh, I, I play out there although they go to the park a lot too um but it's it's kind of been a nice you know privacy kind of thing too so i think it's got it it has benefits but i but you I, guys have that nice front porch too right oh you, the front porch is the greatest part of the house yeah Cool. Yeah. And when I'm at home uh, at working, I usually sit on the front porch at this time of year because um, mm-hmm. it's just so it's so nice. Yeah. And everybody walks by and it's yeah, it's just a f- really friendly place. But I spent the weekend uh, staining the fence. And oh, OK, yeah, that that is slow work. Um, it, it it takes a lot longer than you would think it would. Um, was it just you or did you have any helpers? Um, well, the day I was going to have helpers was really, really nice. And so my helpers uh, opted to go to the beach instead. So it was just <laughs> me. Yeah. But it was me and a good podcast and a couple Twins games. So I, I actually really enjoyed it. So, nice. Yeah. yeah. How about, so it's, it's beautiful there, though, too. Oh, yeah. And we were actually at my uh, in-laws' house in a suburb of Chicago over the weekend. So they have a really nice backyard and nice. walk down the neighborhood. Because we, we don't have a porch or anything in our apartment, sadly. Right. The one thing it lacks. So we don't have any events. We didn't have any last week. We don't mm. have any this week. This is the summer lull. But I wanted to ask, what do you, what do, you do with all that extra time you have now that you're not traveling all oh. over the country? 
what do I do? That's a good question. I, I did some manual labor. <laughs> um, I actually, uh, last week, uh, I, I, every evening starting at like nine thirty or 10. So when the sun is down, um, watch a show with my daughter, my oldest one. Um, this is going to sound like really cheesy. I'll give you a little bit of, she's not a TV person. She didn't grow. We, we, it's not like we were trying to keep our kids away from TV, but my wife and I don't watch a lot of TV and our TV was in a place where you really just didn't accidentally ever watch it. I will go for a week without turning on the TV. Um, Mm -hmm. so my, my daughter is, she's a very creative, has a big imagination. Um, TV shows are really intense for her. Uh, she's Mm -hmm. 12, almost 13. And like we watched rogue one this year and that was like the most devastating show she's ever seen. Um, well, all the characters do die. At yeah, the they end, die so. in the end. Spoiler alert. She was like, how could this be? Like, she just was like traumatized. Like, how, like, you know, no dad, this is horrible. So we've been, um, and this is going to sound like super dorky and people are going to hate, hate me for this. Um, she, she finds the Star Trek, uh, next generation, like the, the mm-hmm. ones that came out in the nineties, she kind of likes eighties and nineties. She kind of likes those. And so we've been like, there's eight seasons. We've been in season one, like just watching an episode, uh, a night last week and, you know, nice. talk, they're old and they're cheesy and the, the acting's not great, especially in the early ones. And there's, they do TV differently nowadays. So it's, it's kind of slow and plotting, but, um, I know they get better and she's enjoying them and they're a lot of fun. So we've been watching, that's what we did last week. Um, when we didn't have softball and we didn't have, you know, 4th of July stuff, um, which we should talk about because 4th of July was fantastic here. Yeah. Um, What'd you do? We did the same thing we do every year, which is go to the parade and go to the fireworks, but we did it from our house. Um, Ah. instead of, so in years past we've driven, you know, 15 miles into town in like terrible traffic had to park like six blocks away in some, you know, grass, you know, weed field. And then, you know, walk across places where you don't, aren't supposed to walk to get into town, uh, to actually be part of this. Now Mm -hmm. we walked five blocks from our house and we're there. And it was just so delightful to because between the parade and fireworks is like four or five hours. We would always yeah. have this period, like, do we go home? Do we stay in town? If we stay in town, we have to go eat. Where do you eat? Because everybody else is there eating. Yeah. We had people over. We had such a beautiful time. We walked the parade. We walked back home. We had a nice dinner. Everybody chilled out. We walked back and watched the fireworks. We walked. It was, it, it was, it's, it's, the, it's the most beautiful day of the year to be in this city. Yeah, And now we were in this house, which isn't like the perfect location. So it actually made this like the best 4th of July in decades. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. I actually had a similar experience because we do our fireworks. Well, they're July 3rd, but they do them over the lake and it's like a huge deal. And yes, like everyone drives in from all the suburbs, stakes out their spots. Like some people get in at like 5 a.m. to stake out their spot on the lawn. And other people try to arrive, you know, throughout the day. Horrible traffic, no parking anywhere. But we were just able to walk down 
to the lake in like 15 minutes, find a spot, watch the fireworks, and be home 15 minutes after that. You know, exactly. after they were done, it was amazing. I, I think of how many nights. You know, it's like 1130 in the car. We're stuck in traffic. We're trying to get home. Everybody's crashed out, tired because this long day. Mm-hmm. Now we just we just walked home. I mean, it was so it was so nice. But Brainerd is not a great place to be on foot most of the year. And, you know, I bike, I walk, I, I do that. Um, you know, I'm in my mid 40s and pretty active and it's easy for me to do, but, but people younger and older, uh, struggle, um, because it's, it's not meant to walk Mm -hmm. this one day. The 4th of July is the day people take over the city. And so you have people, you know, walking, crossing in the middle of the street. You have people just, there's just so many people there that, yeah, that, that like everything else is calmed and you get a sense of like, okay, this is what, Maybe not a normal day used to be like, but this is what a city would be like when there's lots of people here walking around doing stuff and it's pretty awesome. So yeah, it's like this glimpse into what could be and what what should be. So switching gears for a minute, I want to let our listeners know about a couple of things we have going on this week. Uh, in addition to our usual content, podcasts, etc., um, on Wednesday, Chuck is hosting a Slack chat uh, at 12 p.m. Central, and we're going to discuss his incremental development series that he's been publishing over the last few weeks. And you can get more info about that on our website. But we hope you'll join us. This will be a really open discussion. If you've had questions as you've been reading this series or feedback, uh, now is a good time to bring those and. Discuss with other yeah. Strong House members. I, I feel like compelled to get back to that series too because I have like so much more to write. But there's yeah, been I think this. People want to hear. They more do. Too. They do. Uh, but there's been this huge buildup of like other things to write about. So yeah. I, I kind of feel like this week I may try to get rid of that backlog. Um, I'm going to have plenty of time to write. So actually, when we're done with this, I'm going to go to my writing spot and uh, dig in. So we'll see. On Friday, then, I'm hosting our fairly weekly uh, webcast called Strong Talk, which is a live, about 30-minute webcast that we try to do every Friday. Um, This one's going to be at 11.30 a.m. Central, and we will be talking about planning and development in towns that caters to tourists versus residents and how do you manage the tension between the needs of those different people. And we've got a great slate of people who are going to be uh, guests on that. Arian Horbovitz, who's a Strong Towns member, and uh, he's written a bunch of articles on this topic. Uh, Kate Durio, who is, um, she works for the Lafayette Consolidated Government and helps with downtown stuff also previously worked for a downtown organization. And then we have Jonathan Holth, who's a longtime member of Strong Towns and was recently made president and CEO of Downtown Community Partnership in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and he's also co-owner of uh, several restaurants in that area. So I'm excited. That'll be an interesting combination of people talk about this issue. Something else that's been talked about a lot lately, uh, on our Facebook page, we recently we ran an old article um, written by Kevin Klinkenberg, uh, who was a member of Strong Towns and blogger and writer. Uh, and this was an article about a topic that he's um, very interested in and invested in, which is uh, 
basically fighting against the idea that we should repair suburbia and try to turn the suburbs into mini towns. Um, right. And this is a really controversial topic because a lot of people live in the suburbs and they're, the, the natural response is, so we should just abandon this and what do we do with all the people who live in the suburbs? Uh, do we just leave them to die? So that uh, right. republishing that on our Facebook page sparked an uh, ongoing and uh, heated discussion, which I know Chuck jumped in on. Chuck, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? It, it's fascinating because it... It is it is like the quintessential argument between uh, the emotional and the you know the, the the practical, and I'm not suggesting that that is a clear cut argument. I mean, uh, we 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 joke here sometimes that you know you can have like a Spock like analysis of things, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just say okay, well here's you know here's what logic dictates. Um, you know, but but I think that overlooks the human element, and the human element is is very real. Uh, the quote that that I wrote when I posted this, when I shared this piece, uh, I think came from the article that Kevin wrote. And so there's there's simply no upside to making unwalkable places into sea versions of walkable cities, mm-hmm. which it, which which is another way of saying we have so much like crappy stuff out there. Like, it's not like we're, we have this dearth of it. What we have a dearth of, what we lack are really good places. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a whole bunch of places that right now are C versions of walkable cities uh, that could be A versions if we just poured a little bit of love into them. But, yeah, you know, I think that little bit is crucial. Like the amount of time and money we could invest to make those places great yes. is so small compared to how much money and energy we would have to pour into just trying to make your standard suburb into like anything palpably comparable to right. an urban downtown. I, I look at like I look at my city as an example, and, and it's, it's it's not a it's not a perfect example, but if I look at this, I see. Our downtown is struggling. It's disconnected by two highways through the middle of town from all the surrounding core neighborhoods. If we got serious about this, we could take what is a, a sea level place, which is like a marginal place, and we could make it in a decade or, or maybe you know two decades at the most, a spectacular, spectacular downtown uh, with amazing surrounding neighborhoods. And the level of investment that that would take is really modest. It's, it's marginal. Um, it, it really is more of a mindset shift that we're not going to have these major highways running through the middle of the town. We're going to actually emphasize uh, modest improvements in walking and biking. And then, you know, obviously there's some ordinance changes. There's lots of other things that need to be done. But you know the the capital has already been invested there's there's not a lot that needs to be done except to just get out of the way and you know make it kind of a little bit better and i think things will take care of themselves we can go out to the edge of town to where we have a, a gander mountain that's now closing uh jc mm-hmm. big box store that's now closing and you know we look at the area of that and and understand first of all that that area is Oh, I'm just going to throw a number out 20 times greater in area than our core downtown here. So it's a, it's a massive, yeah, it's a massive, massive area that has been taken up like land wise. And we look and we say, okay, if we're going to retrofit this area to be 
you know, walkable urbanism with integrated neighborhoods and full communities where people can essentially be car independent if they choose, um, what would that take? Well, right off the bat, it would take, you know, a population increase of 10 times, 20 times. Um, and they would all want to have to live in this area that has been retrofitted in a completely different way than it is today. Uh, it would take huge amounts of capital, uh, like tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to make this happen of public money, let alone all the private investment that would have to go on. And in the entire process, there would have to be this hope and this dream and this wish that at the end of it all, it would be worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I look at this and it just seems completely impractical to me, particularly at scale. Are there places where it could be done? I'm sure that there are some that where it could be done, but not at any type of scale that would make any sense. And this is really emotionally hard for people to grasp. Um, Jim Kunstler calls this the psychology of previous investment. We, we've made these investments in these places. People have mm, homes yeah, there. People sunk have, cost. Yeah, you have the sunk cost in the ground. And, and so you're like, how do we walk away from this sunk cost? Um, but if you, you know, if you look at the work we did in Lafayette, where we suggest that we should have $20 of private investment for every $1 public investment. And what we find is we have $1 of private investment for every $2 of public investment. What we realize is that, you know, our cities have to become like 40 times more productive. That, th- th- there's no way that happens out in the middle of nowhere. There's no way that happens in these, you know, malls that are failing and the big box stores that are going out of business. And it, there's no way it happens at the scale that would save even a tiny fraction of this. So the, the, the pushback that we got is, Chuck, you just want to give up on these places. Yeah. And like in my heart, like I, I'm trying to say like, no, I don't want to give up on the people that are there. That's why I actually think that we, we can't pour good money after bad. Like actually, if we care about the people who are inhabiting these places today, we can't pretend that we actually have a solution for this. You know, we can't pretend that we're actually going to fix this because we're not. And I, I think, I think there's, there's, there's two sides of this. There's that one where let's stop lying to people that we're actually going to go fix all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of it is let's stop you know, basically taking money away from places that we could fix and that we could make really great for a lot of, you know, for everybody and using that money to, to do things that are pouring good money after bad. That's such an emotional conversation. And, you know, maybe we're not having it correctly, but I, I, I'm at a loss for, for how to, for how to say it any other way. Yeah. And I think you said in response to a question that some people raise, like, well, should we all just leave the suburbs and abandon them? You said, well, a lot of people are leaving the suburbs, even if they're not thinking about it in the way that we're thinking about it. They're, you know, the people who are wealthy enough are saying, oh, well, this doesn't look shiny and new anymore. So I'm going to move to the next subdivision over that was just built last year. Right. Um, and the people that are being left behind are the poor, which is something that we've talked about a lot on our site. And those are the people who are, yeah, hurt most by this and who hopefully we need to find the ways for them to live in more productive places. I, I think this is their needs so much better. Yeah. I, I think this is the part that's incoherent that, that I struggle with because we can see that the trajectory of, of suburbs is you have 
you know, auto-oriented, auto-dependent places, what we see is we see a, a, a generation of things being shiny and new, and then we see decline start to set in. It sets in all at once, and that's very easy to understand because when you build, when you go out and build, you know, whether it's 20 homes or 200 homes or 2,000 homes within a very short time frame, and you build them to a finished state, otherwise they're, they're done, like this is completed, and then we walk away, what you have is you have this echo two decades later where everybody's siding starts to fail, everybody's roof starts to fail, everybody's appliances fail, everybody's driveway goes bad, all within a few years of each other. Mm-hmm. And so decline happens very rapidly. And what you see is people who are affluent, people who have means, pick up on this decline and they move on. They move on to another suburb, another shiny new place, or now they're moving back into, into cities. And, you know, we've seen this before. I mean, people are shocked that we would walk away from suburbs. We walked away from cities, which were far more substantial investments than, you know, that sheetrock palace out in the middle of a cornfield. You know, we walked away from buildings that were marble and brick and, and, and just astounding levels of investment. We completely walked away from them. The idea that we would not walk, that we would, you know, walk away from what essentially is like a, a reinforced concrete pole barn building of a big box <laughs> store. Of course, we're going to walk away from it. There's nothing to it. It's a, yeah. it's a throwaway building. It, it just is astounding. It's beyond people's comprehension that we would do this. I think not only will we do it, but those buildings will become essentially salvage material for, yeah. you know, fixing the rest of the stuff. And, yeah. you know, I, if you live in a suburb today, um, I think, you know, if you live in an auto dependent place, if you're on a, a, a windy street that's 40 feet wide, where everybody's got a, you know, two or three car garage and you've got a big front yard and a deck in the back, I think it is far more likely in 30 years that your place will have been salvaged for the copper and, you know, the, the planking and, you know, the, the apply, the, the fixtures. I think that is far more likely than that it will be a quad unit in a walkable neighborhood. I, I don't see any way that the latter is possible, really. Well, if you guys want to jump in on this conversation, it's on our Facebook page right now. Uh, just scroll down a few posts and you'll see it. And uh, you can add your own thoughts to this ongoing discussion. What do we do, Rachel, about the the emotional side? And I, I, I say this as like, you know, the engineer in me looking at this in the Spock like way, like, okay, here's the numbers. But yeah. I understand that there's a, there's a human part of this. How do we, how do we help people? It's almost like there's a stage of grief people have to go through, right? Yeah. I think we should ask some people who live in suburbs and have lived in suburbs their whole life. It's like, as a person who lives in a very urban area, it's definitely, I have to make an intellectual leap to really fully put myself in the shoes of people who live in these places and, you know, have to have someone say, uh, your place is going to be scrap metal in 10 years. I mean, yes, that's, that's a really hard emotional thing to hear. Um, and not all of them will be, but no, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. Obviously, that's why people have such strong responses when we post Kevin's stuff and, and other times we talk about this. Right. 
Well, and maybe I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to – one of the criticisms that people leveled here was that, you know, you, you, we're not being – I can't remember what the exact word was, but like it, it's – we're being too harsh. Um, oh, gosh, like we're I, also too harsh to engineers? Yeah, Another kind of along those lines. People give us all the time? Like, you know, it's – you're alienating people with this and we need to win people's hearts and minds – Come on, Chuck. You know the, these are harsh truths, but you can't say them in this way. Maybe I'm I'm numb to that because this was my this was my personal experience. I mean, I built a house. I designed it. I laid it out. I pounded nails. I ran wire. I built a house. Um, you know, and 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 I had kids in this house. I mean, my wife and I. This was our dream. We built this thing, and. I, I wake up one day and I look and I'm like, this thing, th this makes no financial sense. And, you know, I went through myself this, this period of like reckoning with that. Like, what does this mean for me? What does it mean that, you know, it's going to take the city 80 years of me paying taxes at the level I'm at to actually be able to fix my road, which is only going to last 20 or 25. You know, what, what does that mean? And, you know, what does it mean that the county has this massive backlog of road maintenance and the road that I depend on to get to the city to actually get groceries and get to work and get my kids to school, that there's no way they're going to be able to fix and maintain that? What, what, what are the implications of that for this thing that I built with my own hands that I yeah. love? Like, what are the implications? And, and that, yeah, there were stages of grief in that, right? Um, denial and... You know, the, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so so maybe I'm glossing over all that pain that I was able to experience over a, a number of years. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it, but uh, boy, I, I, I think to also say, well, it's not going to happen because mm -hmm. we can we can suburban retrofit everything to, to me. Suburban retrofit is like the blankie, right? That you give, your, <laughs> you give your kid when they're afraid of the dark, you know? Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, it's all not working and it's going bad, but here's a blankie. You can like snuggle with this and like, you know, it'll soothe you. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, no, you have to actually confront the darkness at some point and become okay with it. So, yeah, the sheer scale of it is, there's just no way to turn all those big box stores into, beautiful libraries and civic centers. I, I think for people who are struggling with that concept, here's, here's what I would do. Here's what I'd recommend you do. Go to the part of your town, the part of your place where you live that you think is like the, the closest to being workable, like salvageable. Like this, this place is either doing well or on the uptake or, you know, getting there, like this is it and walk the length of that. And, and just note how long it takes you to walk from one edge to the other edge of what you think is like really good. Mm -hmm. Make note of that. If it's five minutes, if it's 10 minutes, if it's 20, whatever it is. Now go out to your highest prospect suburban retrofit place and walk from one side of that to the other, right? Walk from one side of the Walmart to the other. Yeah. Just walk from your suburban retrofit site. Like here's where we're going to do it. And understand that you have to create as much, you know, human, diver you know, ecosystem diversity in that like barren ground as mm -hmm. what you just walk through 
and what you just walk through is is still needs to be better, right? Yeah, and so, that was created over probably a process of decades, if decades. not hundreds. Yeah, of years. exactly, exactly. And you have to create that in this space. Um, what you'll find is that it'll take you twice as long to walk it. And so that, that should indicate to you that like, there's twice as much to do and you're starting from scratch um, yeah. with, a, with, a, with a building that's designed to last 15 to 20 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. We've so, got a lot more content related to this on our website too. So I'll link right. to that for everyone. We've, we've talked about this topic for a long time on I, I think I, I referred people to a couple articles from the suburban poverty series that we did last summer too. And I, I think yeah. that's so important because like our version of talking about suburban poverty is not, Oh, it's, it's, it's bad. Let's bring our hands. Um, it's like, okay, this is like the tip of the spear and here's why. And we got to get serious about this now. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, ugh. It's, it's, it's a really hard thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So what good stuff have you been reading or listening to lately? You know what? Nothing. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> Wait, didn't you say you listened to a good podcast while you were uh, oh, standing the fence? I, I'm, I'm in my, uh, I'm in my getting crabby with Dan Carlin phase. So, okay. um, so Dan Carlin does this podcast called Hardcore History. It is the greatest podcast ever. I mean, it is, okay. it is so good. He has like half a million subscribers or more last time I checked, which was like two years ago. It, it, is, it is the best podcast that I've ever heard, and I love it. And I've, I've, I'm so dedicated to it that for years now, I've been one of his uh, supporters. Like I give him money every month to produce this free podcast. Um, he used to do them like every two and a half or three months and he would lament like how long it took to get an episode out. He's now doing them like every five months <laughs> and when they come out, they're so good and they're worth the wait and they're like six hours long. So it's not like he's doing, you know, 20 minute pie. He's doing long, like they're mini books is basically what they are. Um, but it's been five months since the last one and I'm just jonesing, like waiting for the next one to come out. Like, Oh, I can't wait. So I went back and I listened for like the fourth time to the last one that came out, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but really two-thirds of it is about the history of the, the atomic age and how that mm. changed our government. And I'll give you one example that has stuck with me since I listened to it the first time. We have, we have like the executive president now, right? We've invested all this power in the presidency and it didn't used to yeah. be the case. And we kind of understand that from a historical standpoint. Uh, but, but when you think about the atomic age, what you realize is that prior to the, the creation of the atom bomb, war and the decision to attack someone uh, could involve Congress and deliberation and, you know, all, all, basically like a slower time period. Um, but once we had nuclear weapons and once we could be attacked by nuclear weapons and had to respond, those decisions had to be made in five minutes, in 10 minutes. And all of a sudden you yeah. had a system that by its very nature had to vest a lot of power in one, two or, you know, a handful of people. And because of that, our system changed and we 
the executive branch became much more powerful. And that's had ramifications, you know, not just in defense, but in, in a whole bunch of realms. Uh, and it, a lot mm-hmm. of it just stems from this change in technology. And I, I, I find that fascinating. So if, if his podcast is so good and I listen to that, I also just enjoyed a whole lot of twins games and, um, Oh, nice. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of took the 4th of July week off. I, I still did a lot of work and a lot of stuff and, you know, but I, I, I did things where you didn't have to think that hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. You deserve yeah. a break. Well, I have to talk about a cool podcast that I just discovered Please. yesterday and I'm already obsessed with. Uh, it's so it's not new, but it's new to me. It's called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And it's basically each episode is one chapter, starting with book one of Harry Potter, where the co-hosts who are both um, like they have masters in divinity and they're chaplains, I think both at Harvard. Um, they just talk about Harry Potter through the lens of as if basically as if it were the Bible, not in like a weird right. way, like Harry Potter is Jesus or something, but in a way of like how Religious people throughout time have read sacred texts and looked for symbols and meaning um, and, you know, what implications does this have for our lives? So it's it's really fun and it sounds kind of strange. That sounds um, fascinating. Like, peachy, but it's, it's not. Yeah. And as a person who loves Harry Potter and majored in religion, it's it's awesome. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And started with book one, so it'll, I got a while to That sounds through. really cool. Someone sent me uh, a podcast recommendation that are two, two or three Catholic priests uh, chatting, and I, I've actually found it really fun. Um, you know, they talk religion, but they also kind of just it, – it's, it's, it, it, it's fun to hear them kind of have their own dialogue. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I've been listening to that when I've been walking the dogs in the evening and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fun. So yeah, the, the, the crossover podcast, I think is what I, what I find interesting about the one you just recommended. Um, anytime you, what's that one called? You know what? I don't have my phone, so I can't look it up. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll let you know next week. Um, but it's fun. And, And the thing is, is it's like, yeah, it's one of those crossover ones where, you know, you have people who you would, you know, talking about religion, but they also talk about other things. And just to have that uh, kind of fusion um, is really fun because it just, it, you know, it's smart people talking about stuff, which is always cool. All right. Well, we will wrap it up for today, but we've got a good podcast coming out for you guys on Thursday. And make sure to join us if you're able for the Slack chat on Wednesday or the uh, webcast on Friday. All right. Take care, everyone, and have a great week. Thanks, everybody. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.